The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Friends, I'm glad that you are here. As uh, was alluded to moments ago, our church exists to make Jesus known. From Greer, right here, 29651, to the ends of the earth. We believe that Jesus is good news, and we want everybody to know the good news. And so if you're a newcomer who has come through our door tonight, hopefully you received a newcomer's bag that has a newcomer's card in it. And we always ask our newcomers to fill that out and drop it in one of the offering boxes on the way out. Because we want to make Jesus known to you. That's sort of our deal. Right. Now, let me tell you a little bit of a, a funny story that... I'm going to totally throw myself under the bus here. All right, so every, I warned you this was coming, Franklin. So every Thursday morning, uh, I, I meet with a group of guys, uh, a, a group of guys who are kind of sorting out to see whether or not they want to be in ministry full-time. And so we read through these books together to just sort of talk about life and ministry and what it looks like to be the church in our day and age. This is, it's a 6 a.m. meeting. Every Thursday morning, we meet up at this Panera. Uh, and this pa- well, well, two Thursdays ago, I show up at Panera. I get there at 559 and I walk in the door, I get in my seat at 6 a.m., waiting on these guys to show up, and it's four other guys. 6.05 rolls around, and it's still just me. 6.10 rolls around, it's still just me. 6.15 rolls around, it's still just me. And so with bitterness in my heart, I send these guys a message. Where on earth are you guys? Did, did every one of you stand me up this morning? And you better believe it, all four of those guys, John Andrews, Nick Olson, Jonathan Franklin, and Garner Brooks, stood me up. All four of them on the same morning. And so I had coffee, and I happened to actually run into an old church member of ours who happened to be there that morning, and he and I had an impromptu breakfast together. I was very blessed by that, by his presence, because I couldn't be blessed by y'alls. All right, so that was two Thursdays ago. And then Wednesday comes, and I'm thinking, all right, these, these young whippersnappers, I better remind them that tomorrow morning we're going to go through the chapter that they missed because they stood me up. So I text them, tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., y'all are going to be at Panera, Right? Right, they say, yes, sir, we will be there tomorrow morning. And give them all kinds of grief about it. I'd, I'd send them, like, there's, like, SpongeBob gifts, SpongeBob being by himself with a hot cup of coffee to, to just show sort of what I was experiencing. Then Thursday morning rolls around, and I wake up refreshed, ready to take on the day, and I look at my phone, and I realize it is 6.36 a.m., and I have 100% stood those guys up this Thursday. And I have several texts, probably like a dozen text messages from these guys that's like, this is a brilliant prank. This is genius. <laughs> we love that you did this. This is so great. And I was like, yeah, 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 totally on purpose, totally on purpose. Now, if I understood my high school English teacher correctly, that is ironic, right? The fact that I give them so much grief about standing me up, and then the very following week, I stand them up. That's irony. That is ironic. If you're thinking about me as a character in the story, I'm chastising these poor young guys, while unbeknownst to me, I'm going to do the very same thing to them the following week. That's irony. All right, so the last several weeks, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, over the last several years, we have been slowly walking through the Gospel of Matthew because we believe that a really important piece of this time when we come together is to just walk through books of the Bible, just see what God has to say to us through his scriptures. And so we've been studying Matthew and saying, God, teach us and shape us and make us into disciples of Christ through this word. We're landing the plane in our study in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been studying the section of Scripture where Jesus is ultimately betrayed and handed over to those who are his enemies and ultimately put him to death on a cross. Jesus goes into Jerusalem. He secures his death by opposing the powers that be, by pronouncing judgment on the temple. This becomes the final straw. It results in one of his own 
conspiring with the local leaders to have Jesus put to death. And they don't just want him put to death, they want him snuffed out in the most violent way that they can imagine. They demand that Christ be crucified. And again, this is what we've been studying in the last few weeks. And all scripture is, of course, God-breathed, but man, these stories are incredibly powerful. We were talking about this in our group on this past Wednesday, just how sometimes you just want to sit and just sort of soak in the stories of the Bible as they're being read. And this is a section of scripture where it's just incredibly rich and incredibly powerful just to hear these events. Now to me, what's so brilliant about this passage and the brilliance of the God who is behind this passage is how its meaning is presented to us several times throughout the passage very explicitly, but it's done so ironically. The meaning of these events is actually given to us by the characters in this story, but the characters have no idea that they're doing it. Ironically, the characters who think they're mocking Jesus, who think they're making fun of this pitiful Jewish crucified Messiah, are actually the ones who are telling the truth about the very identity of Jesus of Nazareth. One of the things we often forget, and maybe even some of us have never actually considered, is that the Bible is literature. And I mentioned English class a minute ago. A lot of the stuff you remember learning or the stuff you remember forgetting, that's actually really helpful information as we read through our Bibles. It's helpful to remember that these are men who have been inspired by God to use literary technique to effectively and persuasively and compellingly talk about Jesus. In our passage today, that's exactly what Matthew is doing. In the verses just read, these characters think they're being ironic. They're saying things sarcastically as if they were obviously false, but the deeper irony is that the mockers in this passage are actually right. I was greatly helped as I was studying for this sermon by two books in particular. I'm going to give credit where credit's due. have it up on the screen. Two books were very helpful to me. Uh, the first one on the left, you can kind of make that out. It's a book called Scandalous by uh, Don Carson. Don Carson's a, a New Testament scholar. The book is on the uh, just the, the sort of paradox that is the crucified king, how the gospel is scandalous. That's the first book. The, the, the second book here on the right, it's hard to make that out, but it's a book called Crucifixion by a, a German scholar named Martin Hengel. It's basically the, the gold standard when it comes to what exactly crucifixion was in the ancient world. And as I was reading through this section of scripture, I thought it'd be helpful to, to kind of take a deep dive into the, the actual historicity of the crucifixion. Now let's read again beginning in chapter 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion there before him, and they stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Now as we pick up here in these chapters, what's immediately preceded this is that the uh, the Jewish leaders in the area have determined that Jesus is a problem and we're going to put him to death. But they don't have it within their authority to actually uh, execute the death penalty. So they go to the Roman governor, Pilate, and they say, Pilate, this guy is an issue. We need you to take care of him. Pilate looks at him and he's sort of puzzled. I don't see anything, anything but innocence in this guy. In fact, Pilate's wife in a dream, the Lord visits her and says, this guy is innocent. Don't put him to death. And Pilate says, you know what? I wash my hands of the situation. If you want him crucified, we'll put him to death. And so the process towards Jesus' crucifixion begins. We pick up in verse 27, and it says that the, 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 the soldiers of the governor, that Pilate's guys, they gather together the whole battalion before Jesus in what is effectively a parody coronation. They're mocking Jesus. 
This guy said he's the king of the Jews. Let's have a little fun and let's make fun of him as if he were a king. So it says they gather the whole battalion before Jesus. I looked that up and a whole battalion is somewhere around five or 600 soldiers. So what is that? Five times the size of this room gathered around before Jesus for this mock parody coronation. First thing it says here is that they strip Jesus. We understand that removing somebody's clothes against your will is a tremendous indignity, right? This is especially so in Scripture. Clothes and covering again and again are a theme throughout Scripture that, that, that are sort of wrapped up in this idea of shame being covered. And so for someone's nakedness to be exposed, it's a, it's a way of saying that they're being ashamed. They're being publicly shamed. So Jesus is stripped of his clothing. He's publicly shamed. An obvious act of cruelty. Then it says that they put a scarlet robe on Jesus, something that you'd expect Roman royalty to wear. As they're making fun of Jesus, they throw one of these red Roman robes around him. It says that they crown him, but not by giving him a, a, a wreath of leaves, but rather by gathering together a bramble of thorns and twisting it into like a parody of a Roman wreath. Again, a parody coronation meant to mock Jesus. And this wasn't just the, uh, the, the thorns that you would gather up in your backyard, right? This is a, uh, a type of thorn who's, you know, at its longest was somewhere around four to six inches long, and they forced this onto Jesus' head. And then they give him a reed a mock scepter. And then, again, if you can imagine this, three to five times the size of this room, they kneel before him and sarcastically, contemptuously pronounce, Hail, King of the Jews. Ironically, Hail, King of the Jews. One commentator said that it's probable that with all of this Roman royal imagery, it was intended by these Roman soldiers to be a kind of thumb in the eye to somebody who considered themselves to be a Jewish Messiah. We're going to give him a Roman crown and a Roman robe and a Roman scepter. This guy thinks he's king. The contempt here is clear. And it says that after this mock coronation, they spit on him, they strike him, and they hit him with the very reed that they gave him. The first thing to acknowledge here is that Jesus is mocked as king. Verse 31. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. To crucify him. Now for many of us, I would imagine most of us, the language of crucify and crucifixion is probably something that we're relatively familiar with. Maybe we've even heard sermons that go into great detail about what it, crucifixion actually was. But as I was reading that Hangul book that I mentioned earlier, he says that the most lengthy account of what crucifixion actually is, is the New Testament. That if you want to do a historical survey of what crucifixion consisted of, your most reliable resource is to go actually read the gospel accounts. And the reason for this is because ancient writers considered it too obscene to write about. Crucifixion was this sort of shameful necessity. It was like Roman historians and Roman writers were like, yeah, we do it. Yeah, it's helpful. Yeah, it's something that we're a little bit ashamed of. And we're not going to talk much about it. And so there's actually not a ton that's been written about it by ancient writers because of how embarrassed that they were of it. Its method varied widely, and Hingle notes that the caprice and sadism of the executioners were given full reign. And so the result is every crucifixion looked different. It just depended on the mood of the people who were bringing the execution about. It typically involved someone being nailed up in a T-shape or sometimes an X-shaped. And it always involved mockery and the brutality of those performing the crucifixion. And for Jews, crucifixion was especially shameful. Deuteronomy 21:23 states that it is cursed for anyone to hang on a tree. As for the victims, crucifixion was often used in crimes against the state as a way to break the back of revolutions and to conquer people into submission. It was often used against slaves to discourage attempts at escape. 
And Hengel points out that it was most certainly only reserved for the lower class. The upper class were punished in more humane ways. That's what ancient writers would say about it. And that performing crucifixion wasn't even allowed in ancient plays because, listen to this, this blew me away. It is too shameful for an actor to even play the part. To even pretend to be crucified was considered too obscene, too much. But but crucifixion worked. It was practiced, practiced almost universally in ancient culture. Victims were put to death naked and almost always publicly. In fact, the public shaming was a key component of it. And it was so widespread in the ancient world because of its supreme efficacy as a deterrent, Hengel writes. It was really, really, really good at demonstrating how powerful you are and how intolerant to, to, to uh, revolution or, or sort of challenges to the kingdom or to the empire you might put about. It was about making a complete and humiliating spectacle of the victim. And we're told that Jesus, after being mocked, was led out to be crucified. Verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, carry Jesus' cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall or vinegar. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Jesus carrying the cross beam, the the horizontal beam that was likely to be attached to the vertical beam when he arrived at the place of crucifixion, says that Jesus is carrying this cross, cross beam and because of a lack of blood or complete exhaustion, he can't even make it fully out to the, the place of his execution. He's unable to carry the weight of this beam to the place of the skull. Place of the skull probably named that because of its resemblance to a human skull, but of course the irony isn't lost on us or them. That was a deeply meaningful name. Jesus is so weak from the scourging, he's unable to support the weight of the crossbeam, and it falls to someone in the crowd. Someone we're told here is called Simon of Cyrene to help Jesus. Here in this passage, Jesus appears to be a completely passive victim, unable even to carry his cross. We're told that his clothes are divided up, he's strung up, and once again, he's mocked his king. The charge against him hanging over his head. Here is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Powerless, naked, and unable to even make it to the place of crucifixion, without help. The cross almost universally in the ancient world was an emblem of shame and indignity. And most importantly in Jesus' setting, it was a symbol of Roman power stamping out the weak. And so for anyone who saw or caught wind of Jesus being crucified, this this was a clear symbol of his weakness. He lost. Jesus lost. Jesus lost. The Jesus movement and the, the things that he was doing Man, it had some momentum for a little while. We thought it had some promise. But now that he's been crucified, now that Rome has found him and done their thing, Jesus lost. He's powerless. He lost. The second thing to note about this passage is Jesus is first mocked. And the second thing is Jesus is portrayed as utterly powerless. The reality of crucifixion is that there is no parallel in the modern world. The brutality of the ancient pre-modern world and the brutality of Rome, it is so vulgar, it is even hard for us to fathom anything close. And if we were to try and compare it to anything, it would ultimately be a stretch. But that's, of course, not to say anything about ancient peoples that isn't true of us, as if they were brutal and mean and we've progressed beyond that somehow. I heard recently that uh, somebody who was being critical of Twitter said that every day on Twitter there's a main character and the goal is to never be that, right? 
the brutality and the sadism and the public shaming and the making spectacles of people, that tendency, it's not just limited to the ancients. It is still very alive and well in us. Nonetheless, Jesus is presented as this mocked pseudo-parody of the king, and Jesus is presented here as utterly powerless. Verse 38. The two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked Jesus, saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. We're told that Jesus is placed between two robbers, one on the right, one on the left, and that three groups of people walk by and ridicule Jesus. It says first that the people walked by. Remember, this is a public, uh, publicly humiliating instance of, of making a spectacle of Jesus. It says the people walk by and they wag their heads. They shake their heads. Man, man, man. He made these grandiose claims. I'm king. I'm going to destroy the temple. I'm God's special deliverer. I'm God's very son. But look at him hanging there, powerless. How pathetic. Then it says that the court leaders, the second group, and religious officials, they come by and they join the mockery. Look at this guy. Remember when he said, he elbows the guy on his right, remember when he said that he saved people and he forgives sin? He talked about himself being the savior and the one who ushered in the kingdom. If he's the savior, why doesn't he save himself? If he's the king, why not come down from there? Then, if he comes down, then we'll believe him. If he gets down off the cross, then he'll show that he's God's own son. Surely, if, he got, if he's God's own son, surely God will rescue him. And then the third group is even the robbers pile on. Petty criminals. Even the criminals find Jesus worthy of mockery, reprehensible. And so the third thing we see here is that Jesus can't save himself. He's mocked as king, he's powerless, and he can't save himself. But in just a few Sundays, when we make our way through the end of this story, and we arrive at Matthew 28, after being brutalized, mocked, and murdered. And after being spat upon and made the butt of a big joke, Jesus has the last laugh. Jesus demonstrates that these cruel men, everything that they said about Jesus is true. Jesus, the one who has mocked as king, actually is the king. They think the humor is in their irony. They say, look at this pathetic creature here. He thinks himself king. He's gone about offering forgiveness and prancing around, saying the kingdom is here, repent or perish. What a joke. But the real irony is, the joke is on them. Jesus is the Christ. He is the king. And he is a king unlike any king that has preceded him. He's the king who bleeds for his people. All along throughout Jesus' ministry, he said, this is the shape that my kingship is going to take. My kingship looks like me emptying myself as a ransom for my people. Jesus is the king who offers himself, who takes his glory, might, and infinite authority, and he applies it to the cause of his people by dying for them. He's the king who defeats his enemies by opening himself to the worst, most dreadful thing imaginable. The, the, he, he, he allows the enemy and death to empty its chambers on him. And three days later, he stands triumphant over death. Because Jesus, the one who has mocked as king, is in actuality the king. 
And in the mocking, we see the glory of this king's kingship. A king who opens his veins for his people. Jesus, who has mocked his king, is king. And I love this. Jesus, the one that we see to be utterly powerless, is actually powerful. The mockers are exactly right. He is powerless. But though Jesus is being delivered up, Jesus is not passive here. Matthew includes a few details we cannot look too quickly past. What does Jesus say happens, or Matthew rather, say happens to Jesus as he's falling and being crushed under the weight of the cross beam? It says that the Roman soldiers offered him wine mixed with vinegar. Now the reason for this is probably in, occasionally there would be humane executioners that would offer wine to, to sort of help ease the pain. Uh, it's debatable as to whether or not that was ultimately something that was intended to prolong the pain, but either way, this was common practice. But the fact that they mixed it with vinegar was actually something that was prophesied thousands of years earlier in the picture of the suffering servant in Psalm 69, when the suffering servant says that as I'm suffering, my enemies offer me wine mixed with vinegar, lifted directly from Psalm 69. Oh, and the part about Jesus' clothes being taken from him and being divided up over the casting of lots, that was lifted directly from Psalm 22. And so Jesus' powerlessness is actually a display of his power because his powerlessness is what he planned from ages past because everything that these men have been doing to him has always been the plan. It's always intended to go this way. So you talk about subverting the schemes of the enemy, beating the enemy. Everything that they are doing, their cruelty, their mockery, their humiliation of Jesus is what Jesus has always planned for them to do. And how about this? Goodness gracious, I love this. The most powerful move in the history of the world is Jesus takes the very meaning of the cross and inverts it forever. As I was literally, as I was writing this sentence in Panera Bread, a young woman walked in wearing earrings. And you know what those earrings were? Crosses. Crosses. Jesus, in his utter powerlessness, is powerful. And Jesus, who can't save himself, saves others. The mockers are exactly right. If Jesus comes down, he won't save others. And that is precisely what keeps him there. Because Jesus realizes, if I take myself down off of this cross, which is fully within his, the scope of his ability, like let's be clear about that. Jesus knows that if I take myself down off of this cross, that means that you and I, that, that means that this can't be a thing. We can't be saved apart from Christ offering his life for us. Jesus, who can't save himself, saves others. And he saves others by not saving himself. They say, if you were able to whip up some kind of magic that could get you down off of that cross, then we would believe you. If you're able to remove yourself from this predicament, then we might give you a chance. But this shows you to be a complete fool, a liar, a lunatic, a total hack, it shows that your followers have been misled and all of this Jesus of Nazareth stuff is completely bogus. Verse 42, let him come down from the cross and then, then we'll believe. But for us, for those of us who profess faith in Christ, who have the eyes to see it, we say, because of the cross, we believe. Because you did not get down from the cross, we believe in you, Jesus. We offer our lives to you, Jesus. The folly of sin I completely resign. I renounce the treasures of Egypt. I, I renounce all of it. 
I renounce all of it for you, Jesus, precisely because you did not and you could not save yourself. And so for Christians, as we look at these next few sections of Scripture today and next week, and as we consider the crucifixion, we see the true story of the whole world, the truth about everything here, right here in this event. The most important thing that happened in the history of ever, Jesus dying on the cross. On the cross, we see the truth about the human condition. We see us on the cross. We see our mockery of God. We see our rejection of God. We see the weight and the reality of our sin, of my sin. In our last passage, what Aaron mentioned, taught on last week, was that every one of these characters in the previous section are passing the blame for Jesus' blood. It's like playing hot potato. I'm innocent of Jesus' blood. I'm innocent of Jesus' blood. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. But for Christians... We understand that all of us are implicated in this. Jesus' mockery, Jesus' death and crucifixion, Jesus' blood is on all of our hands. We are all participants and contributors and perpetrators in the long, tragic, murderous, and destructive history, uh, the story, rather, that is human history, a history that rejects and mocks God, dehumanizes others, and invents things like a crucifixion as a display of power. On the cross, we see what we've done, what we are capable of, of what we are apart from Christ, the reality of our black human heart. And the offense of the cross still lies in the ugliness about ourselves that confronts us there. Everything wrong with us is there in that scene. But you know what's so amazing? On the cross, all of our blackness is crowded out by the glory of Jesus. Because on the cross, we see the clearest display of God's compassion and love for us. We see the grace and mercy of God, his greatness and goodness being made known in the taking on of human flesh, of Christmas happening so that Good Friday could happen. Jesus embracing this death, this unfathomably cruel and horrendous murder, so that he could be exalted as king over all things. To demonstrate his power over the very schemes of of evil and Satan and to save his people. To give his innocent blood to cover the very not innocent, you and I. And so so as we look at these scriptures, the question for us is simply this. Do we look, do we see, and believe? Do we see and believe that the mockers are exactly right about Jesus? Some of us in this room have never trusted in Jesus as this king and savior. What we mean by this is that we turn our life towards Jesus, and then we, we, we build our life around Jesus and his teaching, and we're baptized in his name, and we devote our life to following after him and learning more about him in a context like the local church. Maybe you professed faith a million years ago, you walked an aisle a thousand years ago, whatever, but you've never really seen who Jesus is. You've never really grappled with the fact of who Jesus is and who the cross shows you and him to be. Maybe you've never given up your life in order to live your life pattern after Jesus. The question for us that confronts each of us is do we look on, do we see, and do we believe? It's not about doing good things. It's it's not about accumulating a certain amount of righteousness credit points or getting past a righteousness threshold in order to get God to love us. No, we respond to the gospel by simply turning in our heart towards him and say, Jesus, I want to believe this, and I want to believe it more, and I want to give my life and entrust myself to you. I want want to believe in you, and I want to learn to walk in the hope of your ways, Jesus. 
And the best news in the world is that for those of us who repent and believe, it's the language of the scripture, it says that our sins are forgiven. You know that just background, it's like white noise that just follows us everywhere? Just an awareness of all the, the opportunities we've missed, of all of the stuff that we regret, of all of the things that we've done wrong. The scriptures say that Jesus' blood is intended to silence that, to give us relief from that, and to give us hope of another life. This is to me what's so wild about all of this is that Jesus is brutalized on our behalf. His body is broken for us. He dies so that we don't have to. And the way we receive pardon is simply by looking on him and believing him. Responding by reorienting our lives around him and saying, Jesus, I'm going to take you at your word on this. If you want to talk more about any of this, I'm going to be by the back door. I would love to speak with you. We can arrange to grab coffee this week. Same for Aaron or any of our pastors. I know any of these guys would love to sit down and hear your story and talk more about Jesus with you. Others of us in here, maybe we've been following Jesus for years, but if we're honest, uh, we have just completely cooled to the story of the crucifixion. It's like we've seen it, and we're just so immune to it, it's lost any kind of oomph for us. We've seen about Jesus' blood Sunday after Sunday. We've seen the passion of the Christ, the Good Friday, Easter. We've done the thing so much that it's as if we have cooled to the display of glory, the, the glory of Jesus here in the passage. I say, man, let, let, let us just behold Jesus on the cross and stand amazed over these next few weeks as we just get to sit in this as a church family. Just get to see what Jesus did for his people. Let's be invigorated in our adoration of this man, of Jesus, the man who takes on flesh to be broken for you and I. And here's the thing that I, I just I hope is true of our church. Talk about making Jesus known. What would it look like for our church to just be about this? It's like, what's TCGS like? What's its flavor? And if, if we just said, it's this. It's Christ on the cross. It's Jesus crucified. And a bunch of people who are really humbled by that. And a bunch of people who live imperfect, jacked up lives that we are continually trying to kind of reorient back towards Jesus by his grace. What would it look like for us to be Jesus people who are just enraptured by the mercy that's on display for us in Christ's crucifixion? I pray that that is the case for our church because that was, that was what the Apostle Paul said himself that he wanted his thing to be is Christ crucified. So I pray that that is the truth about our church. Community is great. People are great. They got great taste in movies or whatever. It's like, who cares? Let's be about Christ crucified. In the next few moments, I'm gonna pray to conclude our time here and then we're gonna respond by singing. But before we sing, I'm just gonna invite you to just pause for a moment and consider the things that have been said. Uh, in our bulletin, there's a couple of questions that we'd like to provide each week that are just intended to kind of resource dialogue about uh, the, this time in our, in our gathering. Uh, I'm hopeful that it can be an encouragement to you to, to think more about these things, and it can be an encouragement to you or your family or you know, whoever you grab Jersey mics with after this, talk about what it, what it looks like to be about Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you because you came to us, because you bore skin and bones, flesh and bones. You took on DNA and a body, and you became like us to be subjected to all of the boring parts of life, to all of the 
difficult parts of life to be tempted by the very things that we are tempted by. And ultimately, you entered into death for us. For our guilt, for our sufferings, for our sorrows, you became a man of sorrows. And in taking on our sin and our sorrows, you gave us the opportunity to be given new lives, to be given new starts, to to erase our our history and erase the things we've done and the things that have been done to us, to give us a, a path forward, a new life, an opportunity to learn righteousness and goodness and to live a life like Jesus' life. And in the resurrection, you give us the hope of a life that never goes away, of a forever life. Lord Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would so fill our church with a... Just a a, a deep and profound response to this, to Christ on the cross, that it would just become who we are. I pray also, Lord Jesus, that you would give us a a kind kind of energy and gusto for evangelism to make Christ crucified, make the, the cross of Jesus known here in our city. And I do finally pray for anyone who's in our midst tonight, Lord Jesus, who has not yet looked and believed. And I pray that your spirit would work in their hearts and you would help them to see just the truth of who you are, Lord Jesus. We love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.